Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. <laughs> and we are on a roll. I, I'm laughing because I don't know how. I must have doubled. <laughs> I thought I started this a few seconds ago and uh, I looked down and the little the little blue things aren't moving on the screen. I was like, what? What is going on? And then, it's, oh, I, I paused it. I don't know. Evidently, I double clicked instead of single clicked, and boom! I never got going. Even though I kind of got going, I didn't actually get going. Here we are, everyone, on the epic narrative. And once again, we are going to plow through a huge part of this epic narrative, right? Now, I titled this one Sacrifice is Expected. Sacrifice is expected. So we're dealing with Genesis 22. We're dealing with, quote, what is called the testing of Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac on the altar. Dum, 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 like like all of this. And and typically, right, I don't I don't tend to do the same sort of story message out, you know, or the same messages out of out of the story that most people do. So I hope that's true again today because I'm not going to try and break down uh, all the stuff that I've heard broken down with this story. The, the idea of, of laying your life on the altar, uh, that God provides a sacrifice, that he provides the lamb. Like there was a, do you remember this song from years ago? Uh, what was it called? Watch the lamb. Watch the lamb, right? I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliantly written lyric because it is really the story. And there. You know, there was a time in the uh, was it the late 80s, 90s. There was a there was a genre of Christian music that was really about stories. There was one called yeah. There was the one called Watch the Lamb, but there was there was like two or three others that were written that were like wow, like they they literally captured the story and put it into song. Now maybe because of the way I'm wired for story that these songs really meant a lot to me, and they might not have actually been a whole lot of big deal to anywhere else in the world. But for me. Because I'm, I'm kind of, I am not kind of, I am wired for, for the narrative. I'm, I'm wired for story, and, and it's, it's, uh, it was, you know, they, those songs were just like, wow, 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 wow. But I remember singing, "Watch the Lamb," you know, specials, specials. I was part of a. <laughs> I just remember old. It was old school church, you know. Every week there had to be a special. Who's gonna do the special this week? After, you know, uh, when the offering's being taken. Then the special, or sometimes while the offering's being done, a special would be done. And usually it involves somebody singing a solo or a piano, you know, the pianist would just pick a hymn and play it uh, as a special, or the organist, or the organist. But there always had to be a special, special music, special music, a time of contemplation while we give our offerings to the Lord. And honestly, it's not that it was bad or anything. It just makes me laugh because people got stuck with it, right? They got stuck with it. And some churches literally still keep that same pattern. They keep the same pattern. Now, I think in their minds, some of them think this is the way church has always been. But academically, there's no way you could you could believe that. But in you know, in your heart, it's like, yes, this this is church. This is church. I I am not wired that way. I think church should be like a relationship, constantly moving, which means, you know, <laughs> it's probably why I'm constantly moving from one church to another. That's terrible, Bob. But it uh, no, but I do have that heart. I do. I think churches are about relationship, and they should be constantly adjusting. And that means programming and and quote ministries and outreaches and and all the things that most people come into church thinking this should never change. And why is that? Because most people come to church less than less than forty times a year. And let's just say you actually went every week. That's only 52 times a year. And most people don't want to walk into a into a church program and have a change to something that they they only see or experience you know less than 40 times a year or less than 50 times a year. And many many people only go to church twice a year, right? Christmas and Easter. Praise God. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. They should. I'm glad you go to church twice a year. But if something changes, it's funny because they think, no, oh, this isn't church. This isn't the way church is supposed to be. So some people, you know, they still do that special three hymns, 
or you know two or two hymns and and then announcements and then the offering and then a special or three hymns and the offering and the special and then the message and then the closing hymn or the postlude <laughs> god bless him i hope it goes well for him i really do i really do <laughs> all right all that to say is I probably am going to try and give you a little different take on this whole story because I think it's important. It's important to open your mind up a little bit to the possibilities of different filters being placed over these words. So it says that sometime later, sometime later, uh, shoot, I had a note on how old this was somewhere. I don't see my note. Well, maybe I'll run into it somewhere along the way. Um, let's see. Agreement. Oh, yeah, there it is. My little note. Uh, so there's a good chance here that Isaac is in his 30s. Now, some people think he's in his teens. Some people think he's in his 20s. Some people, whatever. Like, basically, let's just know that this this phrase sometime later is, is you know, the last in the last chapter, he was two or three years old. This is probably at least 20 years later. 20 years later, Ishmael is out in the desert. He's become a great hunter. He's gotten married. He's having children. Uh, 12, 12 sons, hello, 12 tribes. Like you wonder where Islam comes from, where the Muslim history comes from. That's them. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating when you compare the two. And the fact that these two brothers weren't designed by God, they weren't separated by God, they were separated by fear, but all that's going on in the desert, all that's growing. Abraham, I'm sure, is very much aware of the success of his firstborn child through Hagar and the fact that this guy is more tied into Egypt than he is to, to Abraham, and that's not lost, you know? It's kind of like a, a preacher, you know, whose sons don't go to church or Sometimes they go to a different church or sometimes they don't believe, you know, in God or they're agnostic. You know, I know there's some pretty famous preachers whose sons have, you know, YouTube channels and TikTok channels. And all they do kind of is bash what they grew up believing because their father believed it. And now, you know, they, they were they feel like they were forced to believe it. And now they can, you know, they're independent thinkers. Oh, God bless them. But people would have been very much aware of the fact that Abraham's firstborn son uh, doesn't follow Yahweh. That's that's what they would have been connected to. All right. And again, we don't. I, I'm just I'm just filling in some of the 20 plus years between the two chapters. Abraham continues to expand. He continues to train. He continues to love Sarah. He loves his son Isaac. He he um, you know don't forget Eliezer, right? The the servant that Nimrod gave him way back in the day, like he's seen all this. He's a part of all this. His management skills are second to none. His awareness of all that's going on in the family, his understanding, the training that he has to do, do on a regular basis to the various servants that come and go. He's also getting old, uh, been around a long time. He's heard a lot about Yahweh. He's seen the miraculous. He was like, there's just, just layer all of that stuff into that phrase sometime later. It says, you know, this version here, New International Version, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Oh man, how many how many messages on that, right? This is what you say. When God says, calls you, you say, here am I. And you be willing to do whatever it is he asks you to do. Abraham took his only son, his only begotten son. And he was willing to lay him on the altar to shed his blood. I, I Oh, oh, come on now. You can hear it, right? Anyways, <laughs> verse, 20, verse two, then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. See, he got up right away. He got up right away. He does not delay his obedience to God. He gets up right away and he loaded his donkey and he took him with him, two of his servants and his son Isaac, whom when, when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. On the third day, the third day, how important is that? Jesus rose on the third day, people. People we know on the third day, Abraham looked up 
and he saw that place like Jesus looked up on the cross and he saw the place of redemption of the world. He knew he was going <laughs> to, I'm sorry. I cracked myself up how easy this is. All right. <laughs> and he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I go with the boy over there. We will worship and then we will come back. Oh, the faith that Abraham showed when he said, we will come back to you. He truly believed that Jesus was going to raise Isaac up from the dead, that he wasn't going to leave him there on the altar for sacrifice. He would raise him again. He believed in the power of God and the miracle of God. He knew that he needed to sacrifice. You see, that's why I titled this Sacrifices Expected, because Abraham expected this. Abraham expected this. Now, I'm going to continue, then I'm going to come back. Isaac spoke up. Uh, oh, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on. And Isaac spoke up and said, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and the wood is here, Isaac, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Watch the lamb. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son and laid him on the altar and on the top of the wood. And then he reached out of his hand and he took a knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him now. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. All right. The expectation of Abraham came from a, 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 a lie that he believed. This lie came all, you know, it just, it just came. It came from his training. It came from his cultural understanding of God's and their expectations. And he knew that God's expected sacrifice. All gods needed sacrifice. And, and even though Abraham had been, had been tutored by Noah, even Noah, remember when he got out of the, out of the ark, right? His, he sacrificed to the Lord. He, he sacrificed uh, uh, animals to the Lord. And, and at some level, religion took over that mindset and said, God's expect sacrifice. Culturally, Abraham was, uh, uh, you know, his father was a high priest under Nimrod. They had 12 gods that they worshiped, one every month. Abraham's father had invented these gods and carved these gods and was considered, you know, the, the primo artist of the day when it came to God idol carvings. And every one of these gods expected sacrifice. Every month of the year, they would they would sacrifice to these gods. I forget at that time. I think it was 13. I think they had 13 months back then. But anyways, I'm sorry. I know people. I, I know some people are like, no, Bob. 12 was the as the as the Caesar's cal you know calendar, and before that it was whatever calendar. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forget these things sometimes. I get I get on a roll. On with the story. So. So he knew that 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 in societies, every society, people sacrifice something to the gods. And this is how, uh, if you study anthropology or at least read articles on it, every culture, whether they be isolated in the jungles or on an island or they are part of larger societies such as Babylon or Rome or uh, Aztecs or Mayas or uh, Native Americans or... Uh, oh, oh, come on, Bob. Anyways, it doesn't matter. You don't need a full list. Uh, any of them, you study their cultures and they start out with very simple sacrifices, right? They, they, everything's going along and they need help doing something. And so whatever entity that they decide is important, whether, whether it just be, you know, sun or rain, or if they want uh, you know, their child to be not sick anymore. Uh, 
they find something of value and they sacrifice it. Now there's some places that are, you know, the, the rumored, you know, pits. I, re, I remember seeing this down in Mexico, right? There was a pit that was that was filled with water and it was rumored that this is where they would dump their, their treasures, gold, precious stones, uh, anything of value that they thought would capture the deity's uh, attention and then the, the deity would be pleased and would fulfill the request of the person who dumped whatever it was in there. But that whole mindset, that whole mindset that you have to perform and please a God in order for God to then perform and please you, right? It's it's a, it's a just a it's a devious lie because it sounds like you are doing something for the God, but the reality is you actually create a God that you control, right? Philosophically, you're saying, if I do this and this and this, the God will do what I want. And so the bigger things that you want done, the bigger sacrifices you have to do. There's a sacrifice is expected. If you want to interact with God, you better sacrifice. In every arch uh, archaeological, every... <laughs> Well, yes, in archaeology, you do see this because if you study anthropology, the study of man, every society moves from basic sacrifices of like fruits and vegetables to sacrifices of precious, whatever they consider precious, stones, metals, whatever, to sacrifice of animals. And every single society ultimately lands on the sacrifice of humans. And Although it may start out with servants, slaves, uh, you know, sometimes it's your enemies, like you go out and capture, you know, uh, whatever, the local, your local enemy, like the village two, two miles down the river, you capture them, you drag them all back, you sacrifice them to the, to the gods in, in gratefulness to gods giving you that opportunity to defeat your enemy. All of that, right? happens. And then eventually, in order to really get God's attention, you have to start sacrificing your own people. And again, you study it in, in anthropology and it starts out with usually people that don't have a lot of value to the leadership. But then the ultimate sacrifice is your firstborn son. Your firstborn son. Now, you could say, no, this was a test of God's uh, of Abraham's desire to obey God. No, it's not. Look at look at his response. Abraham's response is to do this right away. As soon as God says, "I need you to sacrifice your son," he's like, "Yep, I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming." So the next day, he doesn't delay. He knows this is coming. This is not he, he had already proposed in his mind, probably when the child was two years old, at that point, when he was weaned from his mother. From that point on, somewhere in the back of Abraham's mind, he thought, eventually, God's going to ask me for him. Eventually, I'm going to have to sacrifice him. And over time, the only way he could justify it in his mind is, I'll, I will sacrifice him. Like, I'm not going to hold anything back from God. I'm going to sacrifice everything to God, right? And we... We do the same thing. We get in our head, I will I will give it all to God. I will give it all to God. I will give it all to God. But somehow in his mind, he also thought, okay, but God's going to give it back to me. God's going to give it back to me. God's going to raise him from the dead. That's how it's going to happen. That's how it's going to happen. I'm going to kill my son, but God's going to raise him from the dead. So when he says to the servants, we will be back, he fully expects it because he's already worked this out in his head. So many times, right, we have this level of expectation. We see we see what, you know, an open door come from the Lord, and then we 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 project all the details as to how God's going to make it, you know, accomplish his task. We dealt with that in the last in the last episode where the expectation was the only person God could bless, the only son that God could bless would be the the firstborn son of Sarah, not the firstborn son of Hagar. Hagar, Hagar. Huh. And God's like, no, I'm going to bless them both. Don't worry. Like what you're seeing is true, but don't worry. 
he's also your son. I'm going to bless him as well. And Abraham's thinking, well, the only way that can happen is if I send them all the way. So I'm going to send them away. Abraham, when he knows what to do, he does it right away. That's very clear in the pattern, even in the last chapter. The next morning, he rises up and he sends Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. Not not ill-prepared, but basically alone, like here. Take food and water, go on a journey, go to go back to Egypt. Here, you know, 20-something years later or more, God says to Abraham, I, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your son. I'll do it next morning. Boom. He's not testing Abraham's ability to obey him. What he's testing is the lie that Abraham believed that eventually God was going to require the sacrifice of the son. Now, God told Abraham uh, to do what Abraham figured had to be done. Like, he, like everything God tells him in, this, in these descriptions was exactly what Abraham had prepared himself to do. So God's just following Abraham's script at this point. He's like, all right, let me walk you through this. I want you to take your son. I want you to go to the Mount Moriah, uh, which a lot of people believe is the same area that Melchizedek was was sacrificed, you know, that the tithe or whatever was given to Melchizedek, that uh, um, later in, in life is where Solomon builds the temple, is currently often considered the same area which Mecca and the Eastern Wall of Prayer, like all of that in that area of Moriah is kind of all tied into the sacrifice of Isaac. Chosen by God on the east side of where Jerusalem would be built. Now, God is very specific on, on who to take, right? So when it says that he saw the place, uh, where is it? Um, uh, where Where is it? Uh, oh, come on, take his son. He reached up. Oh, there it is. Man, I was way ahead of myself. Okay, in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up looked up, and saw the place of the distance. The implication of those of that phrasing is the servants didn't see it. That, that idea of perception is here. It's like he looks up and he knows, he sees, he perceives exactly where God wants this to happen. So he says to the servants, stay here with the donkey. I'm going to go with the boy over there and we will return after we worship. And Abraham took all that was necessary and he gave the wood, the heavy stuff to, um, to Isaac. And he carried the fire, which would have been in a, a bucket, for lack of a better term. I know that they had ways they would take coals and they, you know, from the fire, and they would, um, they would bury, uh, put sand in a cloth, and they would put the coals on the sand, and then they would bury it in sand and wrap the cloth up so the coals would basically stay warm. Sand would keep the cloth or the leather from burning, and they would carry it in the bucket up the hill, wherever it was they were going to start a fire. <coughs> Excuse me. So all of this is going on, and, and Isaac says, uh, so where's the lamb? So evidently, sacrificing lambs was a regular thing. <coughs> Sorry, Abraham had found that from Noah. He had carried that from Noah. All right. Sorry, I had to take a drink. Uh, so if my voice sounds a little different now. Sometimes, you know, I get a tickle in the back of my throat, and I can kind of keep going and kind of press through to the end of the end of the thing. But I that was not going to happen. I was going about to, I was about to have us an episode right here on the recording. All right, I'm sure Brian cleaned all that up and you probably don't even know what happened. On with the story. So they walk together. Very important. Well, very important. That phrase, man, we gotta, we gotta work on this. So Isaac says, right, where's the sacrifice? The wooden fire here, where's the lamb? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, that phrase means they are in agreement. Isaac knew who the sacrifice was. Remember when I said uh, back in the episode where Lot parted from Abraham, right? He parted. He's like, I don't live with you anymore, and I don't agree with you anymore. I'm parting. I'm going my own way, which I do think plays into the fact that he didn't go back to Abraham uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their greed and selfishness and, and pride. 
He didn't go back to Abraham because he had parted from him. He had basically separated his ways. I, I think it's silly, but, you know, people have stayed separated for worse reasons in, in the middle of disaster, right? Well, I'm, I can't talk to them anymore because, you know, I just, I walked away and um, I'm not going back there ever again. I don't care if I die. That was basically Lot's approach. So here we see the phrase, they went on together. This means that they were in agreement. They knew what they were going to do. This is why Isaac laid down, let himself be bound up and laid down on the altar. He knew what, what was going on. Listen, I believe at some level Isaac understood that eventually God was going to require him to be sacrificed. He would have been aware of the cultures around him, how every culture sacrificed things to their God, how every God eventually required some form of human sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice was the firstborn son. Guess who Isaac knew he was? As far as, as, far as his family was concerned, he was the firstborn son. Now, some might have said that Abraham sacrificed his firstborn son by sending him out into the desert, and they, they might not have expected Isaac to have to be sacrificed, but but that discussion would have been probably done on the on the down low, not out loud. And maybe sometimes Isaac brought up the fact that he was going to ultimately maybe someday be asked to be sacrificed. And people would be like, well, maybe God you know, accepted Ishmael as a sacrifice. He got separated you know, from Abraham. He got sent away. And we know he's doing great out there in the desert now, but maybe he was a sacrifice. And others would be like, yes. Isaac, but if he does sacrifice you, God will raise you up from the dead. There's something going on here that, that they knew what was going to happen. And Isaac knew that he was the sacrifice. So he binds up Isaac. He, he binds up Isaac. And according to verse 9, right, when they reached the place where God had told Abraham, built an altar there and arranged the wood on it, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. The, new, the, the oral traditions say that Isaac requested to be bound up because he didn't want to resist. He didn't want to, he didn't want to defend himself. That's how, that's how ingrained in his mind. He didn't want to ruin the sacrifice. He didn't want to hurt his father. He didn't want to run in, you know, away from what was clearly in his mind going to be a, 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 an expected sacrifice sacrifice, that God expected human sacrifice in order to please him, in order to show true devotion, in order to show true surrender, in order to show true submission, in order to show true obedience. You need to be willing to sacrifice your firstborn son, your love, your your only begotten, the one that you have, you gave everything to, to, uh, you know, to prepare for this day. And there's so many times that preachers grab this passage and they turn this into some sort of guilt-ridden manipulation for you to sacrifice more, more on the altar. That if you're not willing to get on the altar and stay there, that somehow you're less than fully uh, devoted, fully sacrificial, fully obedient. I used to, you know, there, were, there was an evangelist, I remember him, I, he had this catchphrase, right? His phrase was, uh, <laughs> something, now I forgot it. <laughs> it was something like, the Lord would, would have more of you sacrifice your life if you'd stop crawling off the altar or something like that. And he would invite people, you know, that was his altar call, like, come to the altar, sacrifice yourself, come forward, come forward. And of course, you know, we all did. We all were like, yes. Yes, Jesus, I give my life. And we'd sing whatever song or hymn or whatever was was supposed to make you feel whatever, uh, you know. Okay, on with, on with the story. <laughs> you can fill in the blanks, right? A lot of you have already been a part of churches like that or ministries like that or, or evangelistic activity like that. So all of that's going on. He lays down on the altar and it says, uh, then he reached out his hand and he took his knife to slay his son. Again, for my, in my money, in my imagination, or for my money, in my imagination, I wonder how long it was between verse 9 and 10. 
when he saw that his son was willing to die. When he, when his son said, no, dad, go ahead and tie me up. Like, I know me. I'm a lot stronger than you. And I might resist. Like, if, if I see that knife coming or if I sense that knife coming, I'm probably going to resist. And I might run. Or I might kick you and hurt you. And you know what? Just bind me up like, like, like a lamb. Tie my legs and, and hands together. And he takes up the knife to kill his son. I think at some level, he probably was thinking, I can't believe God's, like, I can't believe this. He had to be so convinced that God was going to raise him from the dead. And he had to be so mentally prepared after years of believing that God was going to ask him to do this. He had to, he had to mentally have prepped himself over and over and over and over again. So he waited. He grabbed the knife. He picks it up. And he hears the angel of the Lord call out, Abraham, Ab Abraham, yes, here am I. Same responses as verse one, right? It just makes such a great bookend to an amazing message. You know, here am I, here am I, Lord, here am I. And the Lord says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and there in the sick and he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went and he took it. By, uh, took the ram and sacrificed it and burnt as a, as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on the mountain that the Lord will, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham a second time and said, I, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your, your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore, and your descendants will take possession of the cities of their, of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And the Lord and Abraham returned to, to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed there in Beersheba. So, <laughs> so now, it, uh, yeah, we need to break this down. So God calls out to him, right? Verses 11 and 12. God knows Abraham won't do this again. That's what God's making sure here. He's like, Abraham, don't touch that boy. Don't touch him. Don't do anything to him. Listen, I know that you respect me. I know that you are in awe of me. And you would not withhold your son from me. This is not about whether or not you are willing to do anything I ask you to do. I want you to know, I don't want human sacrifice. I don't want it. Listen, let anyone who go, comes you know, and follows me understand this. I don't want human sacrifices. If you want to sacrifice, here's a lamb. Take a ram, do that. I don't need sacrifices. You do. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yeah, listen to me. God doesn't need sacrifices. He never needed sacrifices. And I know we'll get in more into that when we get into Exodus, but, but he never needed sacrifices. We needed to do sacrifices. We needed to do sacrifices in order for us to give a physical example of what we had decided internally. We have decided to worship God we're going to bring something to the altar. We're going to build an altar. We're going to do something that is a sacrifice to indicate what we've done internally for the Lord. The Lord doesn't need it because the Lord already knows what we've done internally. This whole test of Abraham was to prove to Abraham, what you expect of me is not what I want. You expected me to ask for your firstborn son. So we're going to test that theory. And the theory is don't touch that boy. Don't ever touch that boy. I don't want human sacrifices. You thought I did. I don't need any sacrifices. But if you want to sacrifice, here's a lamb. I'll, you know, sacrifice animals. That's fine. So Abraham names that place, right? And he, and, and, and he's, uh, let's see, your desire to show me sacrifice is awesome. But God, that oh, that's what it is. Sorry. I'm like, what? where is that referring to? 
So he says, uh, when the Lord comes to him uh, a second time, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make descendants as numerous as the sea, et cetera, et cetera. So your desire to show me sacrifice is so great. I love it. I swear by myself, regardless of your behavior, no sacrifices needed to keep me happy. No sacrifice needed in order to propel this promise forward. That's what he's saying. I understand you have a great desire to express to me your love and obedience to me, but I don't need it. And if you need to do something, do not touch the children. Don't touch your children. If you really need to do something, then do the do the lambs, do the rams, whatever. That's fine. But don't. Don't touch the children. And then he says, uh, you know, your possession of the cities. Again, this isn't genocide. He's not saying, listen, I want you to, your descendants will take possession of this of their cities and their and of their enemies. He's not saying, I want you to go in and kill everybody. He's just saying, you're going to influence and override all the cultures of this land. And one of the main things I want you to override in this culture is the idea of human sacrifice. I don't want it. And I want you to be able to tell people that you had an encounter with Yahweh and he made it very clear, sacrifices are not needed to make me happy. I don't need them in order to fulfill my promises. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. The nations won't be blessed. Listen to me. He's... He wouldn't be able to say all the nations of the world will be blessed if he's also saying all the nations of the world are going to be wiped out by war because I'm in charge. That's not blessing the nations. Abraham understood if the nations are going to be blessed, it doesn't mean I go in and kill everybody. And he made it, you know, he had this encounter with God to also realize it also means we're not going to have to sacrifice our children to keep God happy. Death is not the way of the Lord. It's not part of the of the creation, and it's not part of the creator. Our identity, our purpose, our destiny goes back to the beginning, and the beginning doesn't involve death. It doesn't involve killing people. Wow. And then, and then, just for what it's worth, right? We we get Nahor's. Uh, we we get like these four verses at the end of the chapter about Nahor, which is Abraham's uh, brother. And in verse 23, 20, 23, 23, we see Bethuel became the father of, of Rebekah. So here we see the wife of Rebekah, uh, the, the, sorry, the wife of Isaac, uh, i.e. Sarah's replacement, is noted here because it's, it's being pointed out that Isaac will not have to marry a Philistine in order to continue the line. He's not going to have to marry a Canaanite in order to continue the line. He's going to be able to marry Sarah's Rebecca, uh, Sarah's replacement. And here is where chapter 23 comes in. I'm going to go ahead and continue, even though I know it's been 35 minutes or, or more. I'm going to continue because the next chapter really has to do with Sarah and she, she dies, right? It says Sarah lived to be 127 years old. And she died at Kirath. It's almost like Aruba in my head, but I know it's not. In the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn Sarah. He wasn't even there when she died. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? He wasn't even there when she died. He was still in Beersheba, remember? That's where he, he and uh, Isaac had went. And when Abraham rose, he went to see his dead wife, and he spoke to the Hittites, and he said, I'm a foreigner, a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. And the Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. And he said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, 
and Zohar on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah. <laughs> Look it up yourself, verse 9 of chapter 23, which belonged to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. So Ephron the Hittite was sitting among the people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites who had come to the city gate, No, my lord, listen to me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my, my people. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down again. And he said to Ephron, in, in their hearing, listen to me. If you will, I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. And Ephron says, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth uh, 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and waited out for him the price that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field near Merimer, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees that within the border of the field were deeded over to Abraham. And Abraham, as his property in the presence of all the Hittites, who had come there to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in that cave in the field of Machpelah near, near Mermer, which is at Hebron, which is the land of Canaan. And so the field and the cave that were in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. All right. This is kind of just a practical back and forth. We kind of get a picture of why Abraham bought something. We just finished the chapter in which it was clear again to, that God was going to give him the possession of the land. He was going to let him, in essence, infiltrate and override all the cultures of, of the world. He's really talking the world. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And they're not going to be blessed because you're going to kill them all. They're going to be blessed because you're going to, you're going to culturally shift them from a place of sacrifice and, and obedience and manipulation and religion to a place of freedom and love and hope and light, which is what we were all created for to begin with from the beginning. And then in chapter 23, Sarah dies at 20, 127 years old, which evidently, you know, she still looked great. Remember, Isaac was 37-ish. Sages say... Okay, so this is oral traditions that Rebecca was born on the same day that Sarah died. That that there, if you wanted to give uh, Christianese to it, the mantle was was uh, transferred as the matriarch of the of the culture went from Sarah to Rebecca. So her replacement was now on Earth, which is why she was in essence, you know, she gave up the ghost, and Isaac was not. A sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac were not there with her when she died, right? I don't. I assume she knows Isaac wasn't sacrificed, but you you know she knew that why they left, and she had to be quite devastated by that. So they're are they coming home from their trip? Are they doing business in Beersheba and were staying there for a while? Were they opening up new round realms of business? Who knows? But he finds out that Sarah's dead, and he's like, all right, I, I need to put her in a proper place. So he buys a plot of lamb for her tomb. Now, he's very, uh, he shows a lot of humility here, right? They, the, the Hittites say, you are a prince among us. In other words, you are incredibly wealthy. We all know that. You have incredible influence. Everything. In essence, you can buy it all. We all know that. So he goes to the local leaders first. He doesn't just start with the man at the gate. He starts with local leaders, people he knows. Probably he sees these guys on a daily basis and he goes, listen, uh, if you don't mind, could you go speak to your leadership on my behalf? So they were like, well, yeah, we can go do that. So they went and did that. And Abraham went with them. And they go to the city gate and there they, they make that, that presentation. And Abraham bowed down before everybody. And he says to them, again, if you're willing, let me bury my dead. Then listen to me and intercede you know, for my behalf. So 
he will sell me the cave which belongs to him at the end of his field, da 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 Now Ephron is sitting, the Hittite is sitting among the people. So he's, Abraham makes a presentation to some local leaders. The local leaders walk with him to the city gate. They make the presentation. Abraham bows to them. Basically, he is being humble in front of everyone. Now everyone's following kind of what's going on. They all know Sarah's dead. They know Abraham came up from Beersheba. They know that he's a very wealthy man, influential man, and he's about to, they think, have a power struggle. This is kind of like what's going to happen. What's the, what's the heart of this man who follows Yahweh? And what we see here is humility, and we see honor, because that's the heart of, of Yahweh. That's the heart of God. So he comes to this, this place, this city gate. He has a lot of wealth and influence. He bows to the leaders. He asks them for the cave only. Ephron the Hittite, he's at the gate. He has an entourage. He got a lot of people with him. He listens to the request again. Now he acts generously, but when he says, "What is you know what is this amongst uh, be, between you and me? Where is that?" Um, uh, uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, verse 15. Listen to me, my Lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what's that between you and me? Bear your dead. He basically, that phrasing says, is saying, however you're going to eventually pay me back for this, we don't know yet. What is that between? We don't know what that is yet. Just go use it for free. There was a false humility, a false generosity here. And Abraham understands it. Abraham knows these games. He's been part of the business community for a long time. So he acts humble again. He bows again. Now, the reason why we know that this is a false act of generosity is because the guy actually gives the price of the field to Abraham. And Abraham's humility is, I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to try and get a good deal. And the man who makes the offer, Zephron, is is aware of that. He's like, I've got Abraham right where I need him. I literally can ask anything I want for this. He's going to pay it. And if he doesn't pay it, he'll pay me back for years to come because there's no price other than the official amount, right? The 400 shekels. And Abraham humbly bows before him and he weighs out the money in front of everyone. So everyone knows this is a closed end deal. He pays more than the going price, all right? He pays more than the going price because it says that he weighed it out according to the weight current among the merchants. In other words, he took the highest percentage rate of value for the silver, and that's what he weighed out. Most people predict this was about a million dollars. But in the end, he owned a piece of property, and not only the cave, he owned the field and all of the trees around it. And here again, we see a picture of what the heart of God is. The heart of God is to do the right thing. The heart of God is to honor people, to not uh, try and take advantage of them in their time of need. Abraham could have easily used his influence and his wealth to, to manipulate the market, to manipulate the leadership, to gain power, to gain control, to gain influence. And instead, he remains humble. He remains uh, honorable. He remains a light and a representation of, of Yahweh to the people all around that region. This is how his people, this is how his descendants are going to possess the land. This is why Abraham behaves this way. He's not a warmonger. He understands the heart of God. And that's what he presents to the people of the land. That's what attracts people to the heart of God. That's what brings people back into their true identity as, 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 as representations of the creator, light and love and hope. Ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate you sticking with me for a little extra time today so we can kind of close, bring a closed uh, parenthesis or closed loop around this, this amazing passage called the Test of Abraham. And I hope we will continue to learn from this test and learn the patterns of God as we continue in the epic narrative next time. I'll see you soon.
don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Hey, well, here we go again. Let me just first off say, I found episode 37 right where we're supposed to be, unlike last week's episode 36. But on with some other thoughts. Um, I wanted to, I, I, that last little part that we talked about where Abraham showed so much honor uh, and was not, he didn't follow business principles, honestly, just basic business principles within the culture in which he lived when it came to the purchasing of land. And I don't, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that business principles are ungodly or that you can't try and get yourself a good deal. Not it. Um, but I do know that there are business principles that go against kingdom culture. And businessmen will often use those principles and say, well, it's just the way we do business. And I just want to encourage you, if you have a business out there, if you're doing business with businessmen, do it in a way that brings honor. It has been an unfortunate cultural reputation that dealing with Christians in the business world is not something that people like to do because they're always expecting more for less. There's there's always an expectation that somehow the business is going to be willing to take a massive loss in order to somehow get in good with God. Like there's there is this like horrible um, uh, uh, a prince uh, not principle horrible atmosphere around Christians that like, if you're good to us, then, you know, God will be good to you because we're God's people. And we literally lie about the character of God in order to get a good deal. Well, but it's for the church, (laughs) but it's for me and I'm a child of God. (laughs) I don't listen. No, just stop doing that. Just stop it. My dad, uh, he ran his own business. An amazing business, right? Uh, hardworking business, not multi-million-dollar business. That's what I mean by that. He he was a good man. He were, he worked hard, and he by by you know by experience came to a point where, if a church asked him, my dad painted lines in parking lots. If a church asked him to paint lines in the parking lots, he he would only do it if he if he had the time and could afford to do it for free because 99% of the time he wouldn't get paid and the other 1%, if he did get paid, it wasn't what he asked for. It was some small percentage thereof and, and some sort of vague promise to, well, well, you know, if we get more, if we get enough, like we'll get it to you eventually. And so he just basically hung it up and said, you know what, I'm just not, just not working with Christians, or if I do, I'm not going to do it if I, if, you know, if I'm going to charge, I'm just not going to charge. And so many Christians would say, well, that's a win. Like that means he's serving God. That means he's just loving the church. And this is what he should be doing. And it's like, no, listen, my dad loves God. My dad loved the church. But you cannot put that kind of expectation on people, and you should not be painting that picture of God to, to the people in the business world. And that's just that's just one little example. But there are many I know, whether they be in real estate or in uh, their entrepreneurs or they they run um, you know large corporations. It doesn't matter. If the principle is counter to the kingdom of God, if it's counter to the heart of God, that means if it's not generous, if it's not kind, if it's not uh, um, loving, if it doesn't bring the other side more freedom, if it's not in their best interest, then then it's something you just don't do. And you can say, well, God wants me to be successful. Yes, he does. Absolutely. But not at the expense of your character and his and his representation in you. I I, I know I know it's hard. listen I know it's right. It's easy for me to say, current out of work preacher with literal no income to say you rich people got it the wrong way. 
No, I'm not saying rich people got it the wrong way. I'm saying God's goodness can override anyone's decisions. And God is always good. So there are many bad decisions that his goodness still comes through and, and people still end up on the better end of the deal and they say, see, the principle worked. God must be with me. I would counter that by saying God's goodness won't ever stop. You're benefiting from that goodness, but the the character, uh, not flaw, the, the lack of character in your dealings is what's going to, you're, you're going to reap what you sow on that. You're going to reap not having the character of God, and that doesn't end well for anyone ever. And we've seen it a number of times here on the epic narrative. So yeah, uh, you know, Abraham wasn't doing a, a business deal. And that's really what that guy was offering when he was like, listen, what's 400 you know, uh, pounds, 400 whatever of silver uh, between friends. He's like, listen, you don't have to pay me, but you'll eventually have to pay me. And Abraham could have said, well, you know, I think that's a little, a little steep. I mean, my wife just died. I'm looking for the, you know, I only want the cave. I don't want the field. I don't want the trees. I just want the cave. They, like he could have negotiated. And yet in that moment, he was like, no, the, I'm going to, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to pay an exorbitant amount of money for this. I'm not going to work out some deal where in the future, this guy's still holding it over my head or his family can always say, well, Abraham actually doesn't own any land. We gave him land. Like there were so many ways that this could have went, and Abraham could have could have put down a ton of of his own just influence and brought about a lot of peer pressure on the guy to, you know, to not not put any price on it and to truly give it to him. Like there's so many ways this could have went, and Abraham was humble, and he was kind, and he quote took a loss or paid a premium for the land. And those are things that I think sometimes kingdom business, that's where you just end up. You end up in a place where you're like, wow, I paid a lot for that. I've only been a part of two churches that were very conscious about making sure that they paid their bills on time, that they paid their bills in full that they, you know, if someone offered to do it for nothing, they would still write them a check for an, what they guessed would have been the full price anyways. Like, like there's, there's only been two, and I've been a part of many ministries and businesses that didn't pay their bills or would lay them off for as long as possible. I had one, one time early, early, early in my ministry, um, I had to order t-shirts every year and the next year I was ordering t-shirts and I called the guy and he and I got, had gotten along great. And I was like, you know, uh, I'd like to order some more. And he's like, um, uh, you guys still owe me for last year. And I was like, wait, what? He goes, yeah. He goes, I, you know, I'd love to work with you, but I, I never, I never got paid. And I was shocked because it was no small bill. It was hundreds of t-shirts. So I went to my boss and I was like, what, what's going on? And his immediate answer was like, oh, don't worry about it. Just find another vendor. And everything inside of me was like, that's wrong. Now, unfortunately, nothing outside of me said that. Like I didn't fight because I was scared for my own job. And I didn't want to put my, you know, my livelihood as poor as it was I did not want to put my paycheck in jeopardy, but I didn't stand up to my boss when, quote, as a he was a Christian. I have no doubt about that, but he was not living in godly principle. And he was literally not paying the bills, just saying, find another vendor. Just keep, we'll just, you know, find enough t-shirt makers. We could probably go 10, 12 years before we, you know, we have to pay a bill. I don't know what he was thinking. Anyway. All right, enough about that. It's been 10 minutes. You guys are awesome out there. I hope you're having a great day. I'll see you next week on The Epic Narrative. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him 
at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys. Bye.